0: The reading are from the book of John 11 from verse 45 to 57 therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up, You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest, that year he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so they might arrest him. This is the word of God.
1: Hey, thank you very much indeed. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Well done for getting here in spite of the restrictions of the Argus. It's, It's lovely to see you all. I'm very grateful to Michael for his presentation on our finances, and I do want to ask you to redouble your um, efforts in prayer for our building. Uh, This is proving a slightly more challenging assignment than we first thought. A couple of new possibilities have uh, uh, risen up on the radar screen this week. One is an industrial unit in Deep River, and the other is a set of offices in Retreat. Um, So won't you please be praying every day that the Lord will guide us to the building that he's chosen for us. I think that would be good for us all to to be doing that together. But for the time being, I do want to ask you please to all have your Bibles open at the passage that Faye read so beautifully for us. And I'm going to lead us in prayer. Well, Heavenly Father, you teach us that the darkness of ignorance and doubt cannot overcome your life-giving word. May your Holy Spirit, who inspired these marvelous words of scripture, shine your powerful light and once again awaken us to the hearing and to the living of your radiant truth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Privy reminded us, didn't he, at the beginning of the service that the the key verse in this section of John's Gospel is chapter 11, verse 25, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And last Sunday morning, Richard Cunningham reminded us what a strange thing it was to say something like that at a funeral. I mean, on the lips of anybody else, we would say that it was at the least highly insensitive and probably sick, if you don't mean it, or if you can't do it. But of course, Jesus isn't just anyone else. And he proves that he can do it in verses 43 and 44, by calling out to Lazarus, who you remember had been dead in the tomb for four days, and to everyone's amazement, Lazarus comes out of the tomb alive. Well, by now I think we've begun to get used to the the extraordinary claims and signs of Jesus. And we know, don't we, that they're all pointing to his unique power and identity. So what happens next, I think, is a shock. I mean, if Jesus has this unique power to give life to dead people, well, surely what we would expect is that everyone would want to become a Christian. Isn't that right? Wouldn't you expect that? And from the authorities the reaction we're expecting is at the very least that they would want to make Jesus the minister of health. Uh, I mean, if you've got Jesus in the cabinet, well then, a, a pandemic isn't really such a catastrophe, is it? But instead, here, the next thing we're told is about the plot to kill Christ. Now that, I think, is a shock. And I think it's hard to resist the idea that Perhaps this must be a mistake. Uh, But of course, as we've seen before, uh, we must not read this gospel as a kind of random collection of memories that uh, John jotted down when he felt like it, whenever these things came to his mind. No, John has deliberately placed the raising of Lazarus and the plot to kill Jesus side by side in his book. And he wants us to notice that the one who gives life to dead people is about to be murdered. And these two events are inextricably tied together. And as thoughtful readers, John expects you and I to be asking why. Just to make the point absolutely clear to us, please glance back to chapter 11, verse 2. You see, at the beginning of the story, we're told that Lazarus was sick and that Lazarus had two sisters, Martha and Mary. And in verse 2, John says, This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Now glance ahead, will you, to chapter 12 where we're told that after Jesus had raised Lazarus to life, Mary and Martha had a lovely celebration for Jesus. And in verse 3 of chapter 12, John says again, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And in verse 7, Jesus explains why Mary did that. He says, verse 7, it was intended that she should save the perfume for the day of my burial. So, friends, what I want you to notice is that John gives us two accounts of Jesus being anointed for his own burial one in chapter 11, verse 2, and then another one in chapter 12, verse 3. And what's in between is telling us why this was necessary and why Jesus had to die. And there are three things that we need to learn about this uh, from the passage this morning. And the first is a serious warning. Now, the first hint of trouble comes in the mixed reactions to this marvelous miracle in verses 45 and 46, right at the beginning of the passage Fay read for us. So put your nose on verse 45, where we read, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. Verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now friends, verse 45 is reminding us that just as Jesus has the power to give physical life to Lazarus, so he also has the power to give spiritual life to men and women. Jesus has been doing that for the past 2,000 years. He's still doing it today. And here at St. Barnabas, the reason that we study the Bible like this on Sunday mornings is because we believe that as the gospel is explained, Jesus gives new life to dead people. Now, only Jesus has the power to do that because only Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Nobody else is. Only Jesus That means, of course, that if you're looking for life and meaning anywhere else, you are on the wrong road. And a good test as to where you stand this morning is to ask, how do you feel when you see Jesus doing this marvelous work in other people? You know, when you see uh, people changing and getting excited about Jesus, what is actually going on in your heart Do you get excited about it? Well, if so, well, like the people in verse 45, you are a Christian. But perhaps it leaves you totally unmoved. Uh, Perhaps you find all of this Jesus talk a bit over the top. Uh, Perhaps you're even rather repelled by it. Well, if that's the case, you are in verse 46. I want you to notice John does not give us a third category. The people in verse 46 are particularly interesting to me. You see, they've just witnessed the greatest miracle that Jesus ever did. And yet they're immediately hostile. Now think about that. They could have reacted so differently, couldn't they? Uh, They might not have been ready to make a decision on the spot. That would be fine. Uh, they could have stayed behind afterwards to ask questions. That would be fine. They could have gone away to think about it. That also would be fine. But the people in verse 46 aren't doing any of those things, are they? They immediately side with the enemies of Jesus. Now, the question, of course, is why? You know, what is the root of that problem? Jesus himself gives us the answer, but we won't find it in John. We've got to keep a finger in John chapter 11 and travel to the gospel of Luke. Won't you do that now, please? Keep a finger in John 11 and turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 and verse 27. While you're turning there, uh, let me just give you a word of context. This is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's actually one of the most famous stories that Jesus ever told. You might remember that in the story, the rich man lived a life of tremendous self-indulgence. For a long time, probably years, there was a beggar named Lazarus sitting at his gate longing to eat just a few scraps of food that fell from the rich man's table. But uh, the rich man, it seems, didn't notice him. Jesus, in the story, says that both men died, and whilst Lazarus went to heaven, the rich man went to hell. And there, he realized that he desperately and urgently needed to warn the rest of his family to learn from his mistake. And uh, we pick up the story at verse 27. The rich man is talking to Abraham, and he says, "'Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, "'for I have five brothers. "'Let him warn them so that they will not also come "'to this place of torment.' Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Abraham said to him, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, friends, that's very interesting. Because according to Jesus, miracles by themselves don't bring people to faith. Jesus says that if our attitude to God's word is wrong, well, not even a miracle as spectacular as the raising of Lazarus will cause us to put our lives in God's hands. Now, our attitude to God's word is the key test of whether we have spiritual life or not. Uh, If we treasure it, and if we spare no effort to read it, to hear it being explained, and to apply it to our lives, well, I think we can be sure we are Christians. If, on the other hand, the Bible is just another book, if you never want to open it, If you have no desire to hear what God has to say, well that, my friend, is a warning to you that you are in a very dangerous spiritual condition indeed. Jesus says you might actually be so hardened that even the most dramatic miracle won't bring you to your senses. Well, please come back to John chapter 11 because the second lesson that we can take away from our passage this morning, I've called an inconvenient challenge. An inconvenient challenge. Now, I hope you'll agree with me that one of the hallmarks of our culture is convenience. Uh, We buy convenience food. We shop in large malls where parking is convenient and uh, all the stores we need are conveniently in one location. Uh, When our cars need fuel, there's someone waiting conveniently at the pump to fill them up. Uh, I should say that when we first moved to South Africa, that rather took me by surprise, because in the UK you have to do these things yourself. But here, Uh, Filling up the car, cleaning the windscreen is done for you. It is so wonderfully convenient. And, of course, the Internet has taken convenience to a whole new level, hasn't it? So that uh, we can do everything, can't we? From banking uh, to shopping to staying in touch with friends and family without ever leaving the computer screen. Yes, our lives are built on convenience. So here's the problem. Jesus brings many, many wonderful things into our lives, but Jesus is not convenient, and he never has been. In fact, the challenge that Jesus brings into our lives is extremely inconvenient, and that challenge is put before us in our passage this morning in verses 47 and 48. Have a look at them the religious leaders are trying to decide what to do with Jesus. And so uh, look with me at verse 47. What What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here's this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, you need to know that the background to that comment is that the Romans had allowed Israel a degree of independence on the understanding that the Jewish authorities preserved law and order. And here, the authorities saw Jesus' immense popularity as a very serious challenge to all that. And he really was. For a start, Jesus was the end of both the priesthood and the temple. Why? Because he was both. You see, from God's perspective, the year that Jesus died was the year that Caiaphas was out of a job. There was no longer a need for high priests and sacrifices in the temple, because as the writer to the Hebrews puts it, on the cross... Jesus offered for all time one full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for sins. Now, of course, Caiaphas had no idea about that. He went on offering sacrifices for years and years. But all of it was meaningless. One uh, commentator captures the reality really rather well when he says this, Quote, The great high priest forever, Jesus, had come and stood by the earthly one, Caiaphas. The reality, by the shadow, and by the sacrifice of himself for sin, he would empty the earthly priesthood and the sacrifices of all validity. Now, friends, I wonder if you can see how tragic this was. You know, Caiaphas and the other members of the Sanhedrin were constantly engaged in a whole range of different religious activities. All of them were pointing to Jesus. But when Jesus himself came and stood among among them, uh, instead of embracing him and submitting themselves to his authority, they were obsessed, weren't they, with preserving their independence They never thought for one moment that keeping things the same was actually the worst possible thing they could do. Now, many people in church have the same problem today. They made uh, a confession of faith perhaps many years ago, and now they're quite happy to hear about Jesus ...until you remind them that Jesus is not content to be a spiritual side dish in their lives. Jesus simply will not be a fix for people who want some spirituality in their lives on Sundays... ...but then want to live as they please for the rest of the week. He is just not that convenient... And I must be honest here and say that that was a huge problem for me for some years after I heard the gospel. Uh, On the one hand, I remember how very excited I was when I heard the gospel being properly explained for the first time. It was truly thrilling for me. And I was greatly encouraged to see other people taking the Bible seriously. But for a long time, you see, I actually wanted to keep a foot in both camps. I wanted to keep going along to these exciting lunchtime meetings, but at the same time, I did not want to give up my independence. I didn't want anybody else to be lord of my life. That would have been far too inconvenient. And the result, I have to tell you, was a number of years of profound spiritual misery. So friends, the inconvenient truth At the heart of the Christian gospel is that Jesus demands we give up our independence. That we give up the attempt to run our lives our way. Jesus demands that we depend on him alone. Now instinctively we find that hard. All of us do. And if we were giving up our independence to anybody else, that reluctance would be completely understandable. But because we're called to give up our independence to Jesus and to make Jesus Lord of our lives, it's actually the best possible thing to happen to us. Now, can I say that too many churches are not teaching this? In too many churches, the gospel is being watered down to enable people to carry on living their lives totally unchanged. The challenge to give our lives to Jesus is largely overlooked. Now someone who's thought a great deal about this is an Indian theologian called Vinoth Ramachandra. And he's the author of a book called Gods That Fail... And in the book, this is what he says about the way that many churches adapt the gospel to make it more digestible. And I do hope the quote is going to appear on the screen. There it is. He says, the good news is packaged and marketed, using uncritically all the techniques of modern advertising as a religious product, offering peace of mind, how to get to heaven health and prosperity, inner healing, the answer to all your problems, etc. What is promoted as faith in God often turns out to be a means for obtaining emotional security or material blessings in this life and an insurance policy in the next. This kind of preaching leaves the status quo untouched, It does not raise fundamental and disturbing questions about the assumptions upon which people build their lives. It does not threaten the false gods in whose name the creation of God has been taken over. Indeed, it actually reinforces their hold on worshippers. This kind of gospel is essentially escapist. It is simply a religious image of the secular consumerist culture in which modern men and women live. Well, I think that's rather well put, don't you? But, friends, you see, Jesus will not be part of our lives on terms that are convenient for us. He demands all of us complete surrender. Yes, it is an inconvenient challenge. But as we wrestle with that challenge, we also need to hear the third message in our passage this morning, which is that God has provided a perfect substitute. Now, we said at the beginning, didn't we, that John has put the raising of Lazarus and the plot to kill Jesus side by side in his book as the best possible way of explaining why Jesus died. And that explanation is given to us by the most unlikely person in the passage. So come with me, please, to verse 49. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all, he said. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Now, friends, we need to learn to read these verses on two levels. At one level, what Caiaphas says there is highly ironic. Uh, he wants to get rid of the threat that Jesus presents to national security, and indeed his own position. It's interesting because, of course, at this point, Caiaphas thinks he holds all the aces, doesn't he? In reality, of course, he doesn't. Because history tells us that in the year A.D. 70, the city of Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. Now, that is a pattern we find throughout Holy Scripture. So for example Proverbs 19:21 says this Many are the plans in a man's heart but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails In other words uh, men and women think they can scheme against God but in the end they will never succeed because God's will always always prevails. But far more important, by killing Jesus, uh, Caiaphas thought that they were going to bring the whole Jesus movement to a grinding halt. And yet, of course, they didn't. By the time that John wrote this, the cross had already become the rallying point for all Christian belief. Can you see how ironic this is? You know, they rejected Jesus to secure their own position, but all the time they were actually fulfilling the purposes of Almighty God. Because through their actions, the cross became the blazing center of all of God's purposes for mankind. And by rejecting Jesus, far from preserving their independence, they were in a far, far more dangerous position. And it is exactly the same for us today. You see, we have no hope and no assurance apart from Jesus Christ. All independence is an illusion. We need to look back and remember that whilst the prospects for Christianity looked extremely bleak when Caiaphas was speaking in chapter 11, in the end, Jerusalem was flattened under the judgment of Almighty God. Now that, my friends, is how it's going to be for everyone who rejects Jesus today. The independence you think you might be able to keep by rejecting Jesus will in the end prove to be a complete illusion. And on the last day, you will have to face the judgment of Almighty God. Someone needs to say that to President Putin, don't they? But what Caiaphas said wasn't just ironic, it was also prophetic. This is very important. Look at verse 51. Caiaphas did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied, notice that word, that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. Now, what's happening there is that John, the author of this book, is making his own comment. He tells us that when Caiaphas spoke, he was prophesying. And in the Bible, to prophesy is to speak on God's behalf. In other words, Caiaphas was speaking better than he knew. And John's comment is that, without even realizing it, Caiaphas was explaining the gospel. Because Jesus didn't die for just one nation only, but for everyone who's been alienated from God because of their sin. That's what John means when he says that Jesus died for the scattered children of God across the world in every age. So I hope by now you can see if we ask the question, why did Jesus die? The answer is that he died to give us life and that's what the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11 is pointing to. Jesus has the unique power to raise you and I to eternal life because he died for us. He died on our behalf. But as we close, we might also ask, well, who actually killed Jesus? And I think the answer might surprise some of you. It's certainly not what most people think. And uh, as we close, won't you please turn quickly to Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53. Famous words, but I think very striking when we view them through the lens of John chapter 11. Isaiah 53 verse 10. Isaiah writes... Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, that is to say, to crush Jesus, and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he, that is Jesus, will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, or by knowledge of him, or by knowing him, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Who killed Jesus? Not Caiaphas, not the Jews, not the Romans. No, it was God himself. Well, there's more than enough to think about there this week. Let's pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for causing the life and ministry of Jesus to be faithfully recorded by the eyewitnesses so that through their testimony, we can be sure of what Jesus said and did and what it means for us this morning. We pray especially for those who are considering these things perhaps for the first time please will you open their eyes to see that Jesus is the resurrection and the life so that they might give up all resistance and put their lives in his hands. And we ask it for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen.